Hello, and welcome to another episode of Vanguard Indo-Pacific, um, the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers uh, periodic podcast. I'm your host tonight, uh, Christopher Kolakowski. I'm a senior fellow at the consortium and head of the military history team. And I'm joined tonight by several members of the consortium's military history team to uh, continue a conversation that we had back in April of 2023, which is the importance of military history. We had a great conversation at the time, but uh, there was frankly more to be said on the subject and more to be explored. And so we decided to continue that with a part two um, episode. Um, joining me this evening is, uh, as I mentioned, members of the military history team, Jose Custodio, who is uh, from the Philippines, a noted um, defense commentator in East Asia. And then I'm also joined by two active duty Air Force officers, uh, Grant Willis and uh, Brendan Donnelly, both of them stationed at Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. So gentlemen, good evening. Um, looking forward to a great discussion. Um, just to recap for the panel, but also folks that uh, may not have may have missed part one. Uh, we've been talking about the importance of military history, wh what its value is and why it matters. And in part one, we looked at it from a very broad kind of a general sense, looking at it um, from a looking at it from the applicability to a general audience in many ways. Well, tonight we want to drill down into part two and look at some more specific um, specific aspects of it, particularly value to war fighters, some specific case studies, some additional kind of perspectives and kind of drill down on the conversation we had in part one. So that's what we want to do tonight. I'm looking forward to a great discussion. I will just just to kick us off um, before we get into kind of the initial question, you know, one of the things always it's good to define your terms and the definition of military history that we used in the last part is the same one that we're I'm going to offer tonight um, for us to use for the discussion. Military history is the study of the conduct of war, of nations at war, armies and the people that make them up. And as we discussed last time, Jose and I discussed last time, in many ways, military history, if you accept that definition, is one of the disciplines of history that actually incorporates the most because that definition encapsulates social history, economic history, strategy, diplomatic history, um, you name it. So there's a lot there. And so, you know, you, with that in mind, um, we'll go ahead and, and continue down and continue this discussion of uh, that we started in part one. Um, and let's zero in on, you know, military history, particularly with two serving officers, um, and then several of us that have worked with uh, defense, Philippine defense, and in my case, the U.S. Army. Um, military history is important to modern warfighters, to the modern military. And so I'll open it up for whoever wants to start with that and discuss why is military history important to today's warfighters? I think I'll I'll take this off, uh, Chris. I, I think the original definition that you gave is is really defining for us as junior officers, uh, company grade officers that are uh, currently active duty. I, I think that a lot of people view military history as more of a more of like a checklist item that you have to mark off when you're conducting operations, but that's not really the reality of it. Uh, I don't see it as a checklist where step-by-step step you have to follow exactly what some general did or exactly what some captain did. Um, I view it more of a as more of a guideline. 
more of something to point to when you're in a pinch or when you find yourself in a situation that you can recall a specific scenario that you can use to help you out. Um, you can try and draw from those situations and use them in the current context and adapt them to your own modern environment. And what I really like to tell myself over and over again is, you know, the, the nature of war doesn't really change. The character of war does the way in which it's fought does, but the end game really always stays the same throughout. Uh, but that would be the, the more broad version of why I think it would matter for military members, for people who are actually within the profession of arms. Brendan, do you have any thoughts? Oh, definitely, as always. I, I love this opportunity to share my opinion because in most academic circles, my military career is usually a bias. But in this case, it is exactly what we're talking about. So I appreciate this opportunity. Um, and as an intelligence officer myself, but also I'll take a little bit of a different aspect than what Grant was talking about is studying kind of how the, how the, the fight has been fought before. But in the current day's military, one of the things, and, and this isn't just the, the, in the Indo-Pacific, our team has talked about how the Indo-Pacific has a very long memory, but it's not just the Indo-Pacific, but it's all across the world that there is a long record of history in multiple different countries. So as either a warfighter or as an intelligence professor, professional, or if you are the support to either of those career, career fields, it's still an enormous responsibility to still understand who you are fighting. Because uh, you can talk about how we fought them before, but one of the big things is figuring out how, to, how have they fought before, why have they fought before? Because in my experience so far in the military is uh, the, the newer uh, military members are all focused on the why. And military history provides a, a significant part of that. So I, I won't go into too much detail right now, but it's an idea from Sun Tzu of just understanding the enemy so then you know every aspect of them. Um, and for some specific examples is the India-Pakistan uh, conflict going on right now in Kashmir. Some military members, and I'll be completely honest, don't 100% understand that conflict. Why do India and Pakistan even have some kind of conflict over that area? Uh, without understanding the beginning of that and why those two countries are at conflict, uh, the theory is that you can't effectively conduct warfare without understanding those adversaries. North Korea and South Korea, that's a pretty easy one. Um, I mean, we had a large presence in the in the Korean War and a continued Korean conflict, but then in the Middle East, just wow, there are too many uh, different ways that we have to understand the players in the Middle East. Um, CENTCOM is one of those ones that's extraordinarily complex, and the warfighter needs to know that because it's not just the United States, Russia, and the individual countries, but there's a lot of people in a lot of different countries and even non-state actors that have their fingers into the Middle East and understanding that that history is extraordinarily important. And then I can't forget about Africa because Africa is a is huge on, hi on history uh, between different religions, uh, social groups, governments, all of that. And without understanding where a country has come from, then you don't know where they're about to go. So I think that's why in a broad spectrum, that's why uh, military members need to know at a global scale the military history behind a country in order to effectively conduct war in that country or against it. 
your comment brings to something to mind that I used to tell the NATO military committee. You use the past to inform the present and influence the future. So, Jose, I know you have additional thoughts from our last from our last discussion. So I'll let you I'll let you jump in on this too. Well, basically, mine's going to be brief. Basically, it's just that uh, for me, military history it's a practical application. It's that it's a source of lessons learned. Okay, and I mean for the military specifically, it's a source of lessons learned. And um, uh, those lessons learned are important in the formation of new doctrines or, or or the validation of doctrines for existing doctrines. Okay, so so without the study of military history, then you can't have an assessment of how effective your your operations are. You know, you tend you tend to forget also. When you forget, then how can you learn your lessons? So so military, the study of military history becomes important in that aspect. It's very very important in that aspect. Okay. Because time and again we've seen militaries um, uh, cycle in operations in terms of uh, doing the same mistake over and over. And if we are going to use uh, a good example of that, is that are the Japanese operations in uh, the South Pacific, wherein they stubbornly just kept on doing the same thing over and over, despite the fact that. Uh, they were already being uh, slaughtered each time and they were doing the same thing over and over. Then we go over to the Soviet Union and the way that the Red Army then, the Red Army, okay. Um, uh, that's a very good example in case of the Red Army, that how they were conducting their operations uh, in a very rigid manner. And then fast forward to Ukraine operations now, and we tend to see the same thing going on also in some aspects of Russia's operation, because Russia being the inheritor of the Red Army, um, Russia's operation in the Ukraine. So again, um, it's a source of lessons learned. And if you ignore that, then you repeat the same mistakes. Okay, But it's easier said than done, because there are other aspects like, for example, national pride, dogma that tend to um, make it difficult for the lessons of history to be understood by a by a military, and again, the best example of that is so uh, um, the the interregnum between the First World War and the Second World War, wherein the French uh, army, the French military, is a prime example of that. Okay, so that wasn't exactly short, but uh, yeah, there. <laughs> I tell you, there there's a lot to unpack here, and you guys have addressed. I, I think we've laid out the rest of this discussion, just unpacking the many things that were brought up here. Um, let's let's kind of take it in in some general order of what you all presented. And and you know, you, Grant, you brought up the idea of case studies, looking at you know what could be, what the possibilities are. Are there examples? Are there things that might influence or predict the future? even something as simple as a leader making a decision or facing a situation. And so I'm curious, I'll, I'll let you start, but I want the others to jump in. Case studies like that, either think about it either from a perspective of an of a officer, a junior officer, senior officer, whatever, or even looking much, broad, much broader at the geopolitical situation in the Indo-Pacific or elsewhere, you know, what, what jumps out at you as, you know, some, some, useful or applicable case studies or some things that are worth worth considering um, going forward. Yeah, you know, Chris, I, I think specific case studies to uh, the Indo-Pacific today, for me, have to be the Bataan, the Bataan campaign and the Philippines in 1941 to 42, 
the defense of the archipelago against the Japanese invasion by the Americans Filipino force. Uh, you can learn a lot of lessons by looking towards those campaigns as far as what modern problems you're going to face today at the strategic, operational, and even tactical level. I think the key fundamental thing that doesn't change very often when it comes to warfare over the years is terrain. The importance of terrain and geography will always dictate uh, the logistics of battle, placement of troops, key nodes of communication, key routes of supply, those don't really change too much. You have technological leaps um, that kind of alleviate some of that. Uh, for example, I mean, we, we talk a lot about the air commandos in Burma uh, doing uh, resupply operations for the Chindits that go deep into uh, go deep into Burma against the Japanese behind their lines, and they're able to get resupplied from the air where an army even 20 to 25 years before that would have very a very difficult time getting aerial resupply uh, behind enemy lines. I think something that I kind of dived deep into recently uh, is the World War One Middle East campaigns. Uh, you know, when you talk about CENTCOM, you talk about the origins of the difficult uh, terrain that you find there and, the, and, and similar challenges of supply, of movement of troops. You look at the Mesopotamian campaign, 1914 to 1916, at places like Kut, El Amra, you've got the first ever use of aerial resupply uh, in that siege. And, you know, thinking about where we've operated for the past couple decades, what remained true in 1915 to 16 for General Townsend and the 6th Division uh, in, at siege at Kut, where they needed resupply daily, uh, I think it was up to like 5,000 tons a day is what they were requesting, and they didn't even get close to that. But they were working on developing the innovation through air power to try and resupply that garrison for the first time. And you kind of see similar ideas of supply and problems of, of moving troops and terrain like that uh, today. You can see it in the Pacific, certainly, because of the large body of water that we've got to deal with and all the islands and the archipelagos there. Um, and, and really, terrain for me does dictate a lot of that uh, memory when it comes to making tactical decisions, even for a company grade officer, and you're trying to uh, fly in a certain spot or you're trying to operate in a certain area and you can use terrain features that may have been utilized hundreds of years ago, they don't really change too much. But if you have that understanding of history and the campaigns that took place in the same places that you're currently operating, well, you can learn a lot just from understanding that background and being able to apply it in your everyday operations. So that, that's one of the key things that I would take away. Um, another big thing that I, that I think is important for us to, to understand is the importance of studying military history as far as creating a, a mindset while you're young about how you're going to look at different <laughs> scenarios that you could take as case studies. For example, um, George Patton uh, was a prominent writer. Uh, he wrote a lot about uh, previous military campaigns before he was really well known in World War II. He was well known in World War I, but if you look at some of his papers that he wrote professionally about, uh, there, there's one that I found the other day about the Gallipoli campaign where he wrote a comprehensive history of the Turkish defense of the peninsula against amphibious assault as a part of the G2 section of the Hawaiian division in 1936. On the general staff there, he wrote a case study paper about roughly 70 pages on the effects of terrain, the effects of supply, the effects of combined arms operations, understanding the applications of 
uh, sea power and land power working in conjunction together. And it made me think fast forward a little bit to 1942 when he's off the coast of Casablanca, North Africa. What's going through his mind as far as this amphibious assault and this invasion he's about to partake in? What kind of lessons is he drawing from his study of the Gallipoli campaign in 1942 that he had been studying ever since probably 1915 when the campaign uh, launched? All of those years of buildup to military education had to impact him in some sort of way at that strategic and even operational level. Uh, even off of the coast of Sicily when he's doing Operation Husky, that amphibious assault, he's probably still drawing lessons from Gallipoli. And based off of his performance, you're able to kind of pick through where his head at, where his head was at in 1936, and where his head's at in 1942, and what he decides to pick and choose from history. Like we talked about, it's it's not a checklist. It's not a step by step. Here's what you need to do and don't do. It's a guideline where you can take out that study guide and kind of say, hey, this is what this general thought because of this specific terrain feature. Here's what the enemy did uh, at this location 50, 20 years ago. What might I be able to do that's different? But that's all I have on that. I can hand it off to Brendan if you want here. Yeah, Jose, Brendan, I'll let one of you guys jump in here if you like. Well, to keep the same order, but I'll uh I'll I'll jump in there. So on a different facet or another facet of understanding military history aside from terrain. I know that Chris, Jose, we've talked about uh the tyranny of geography in previous podcasts mm -hmm. before. So I, I won't I won't beat a dead horse on that one. Uh, because Grant, I think, summed it up well enough. Um, the other part that I wanted to say is he was talking about the history uh, of understanding how terrain in history in military history has impacted the battle space. A different thing that I wanted to bring up was how the military and diplomacy between countries have also impacted military action. Because uh, there's one thing that is definitely known for sure is that China and North Korea, so the two adversaries for the United States uh, in the Indo-Pacific, they also study the United States. It's not that we're only going to be studying them and they don't really care. So it's we have to understand them just as well as they understand us. And one of those ways is they're going to study how our or the United States' leaders, political leaders and military leaders acted and reacted to the North Korean and Chinese military action before. So I think that's one thing uh, that is something that's a little bit different because over the last 20 years, the U.S. military has really been focusing on countries like Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Iran, those different kinds of governments and different militaries that are going to be drastically different from the Chinese military because they've had different military experiences. Of course, we have everybody knows Mao Zedong, the, the uh, civil war that happened in China, but then now we also have Xi Jinping. So we have to understand how is Xi Jinping and how is Kim Jong-un, how are they understanding the United States? But then how are, but then we also have to know the history of how they've either even come to power, how they reacted to what the United States has done in terms of our military history. And that's another, that's another little piece that kind of adds to that is, so by understanding the terrain, and then also understanding the leader of the adversary that we're going up against and the background to their own power, those two facets will allow us to effectively uh, use military history, their military history and our military history to actually execute any kind of warfare. Go ahead, Jose. 
Ah, okay, so thank you. So um, for me, on, on a, a, a um, area to consider also in terms of military history is the, uh, because we always talk about battles, okay? But there's another, but Brendan here brought up that aspect of diplomacy, okay? And in diplomacy, you have that aspect of the alliance system. And um, it's uh, very important to look at the United States uh, history of um, alliance relations. And again, so we start from, I mean, if you look at what happened in World War One, okay, um, and then how it developed into World War Two. So in World War One, it was quote unquote a junior partner in the Western Alliance against um, Imperial Germany. But in World War Two, it became the senior part. It became, became the how do I say it? Um, the most dominant power, okay, in in the alliance system, and in that you you will learn a lot of uh, of lessons in how the U.S. interacted with its allies. Okay, so we'd have uh, we'd look at how Eisenhower dealt with uh, people like Montgomery because it's very important to do that because so that uh, you have uh, you you you'll be able to determine how best to exercise uh, or do command be in command in a situation where you read a lot with multinational partners who have various capabilities and even various idiosyncrasies. For example, you have a doctrine, okay, but your doctrine is based on your own particular historical context. Then you go into an alliance with another country which has a different historical experience and therefore its doctrines will be different also. So then you try to merge that. How do you do that? And how will you combine that? And, and we, we a, a modern example, of course, is um, uh, the, what's going on in Ukraine. You know, uh, you, you have a country that was steeped in Soviet-era technology. And then if you look at the pictures now, you will see it slowly morph into a Western-oriented army. And the, 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 the lessons that can be um, can be um, taken there can be applied, of course, in other areas that the United States is working in. Like for example, in the case of the in East Asia, Southeast Asia. So that's I think um, I think this entire um, area of of um, the alliance system, the history of the alliance system, of the United States, how it um, not just trained allies, how it supported them. Also, we go to the land lease. Uh, the land lease um, history, the, the the fifty destroyers, and then we go to the modern, uh, to the post-war era, and then up to and then now. Okay, um, so I, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of areas that can be covered. A lot of uh, there's a wealth of information that can be very useful there. Yeah. No, those are great points, guys. Just listening to what you're saying, a, a couple of things occurred to me, Brendan. What you talked about about not understanding the enemy or the adversary particularly their national, but it, Vietnam, the United States involvement in Vietnam, particularly the strategic decisions is a tremendous example of in many ways, what not to do. And that I bring that up to simply, you know, say that that deserves a lot of study and points up to this. A lot of times you can learn just as much from what went wrong as opposed to what went right. Two other things I would have I'll just use moderator's prerogative and throw a couple things in to, as for, for my answers. Um, the first one is a rising Asiatic power. The last rising Asiatic power um, in the region was really Imperial Japan before Pearl Harbor. And there are lessons there to be considered, both in terms of how to manage, how to 
respond, how to assemble, to, to Jose's point, uh, how a coalition might be assembled. Um, but also one of the things, the Japanese had a self, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. They assumed for 20 years before Pearl Harbor, they were going to fight the United States. And the United States had the same basic assumption. And one of the things that concerns me is I'm starting to hear that more and more from both China and the United States that they are going to fight each other. And that to me is a significant lesson is be careful that doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And to that point as well, I, when I think about, you know, Grant's point about, you know, what campaigns of the Pacific or what in that region might be interesting, you know, good case studies to kind of consider as you plan, you know, operational tactical war fighting. One of the other ones I would suggest, I think the Philippines is a good one in 41, 42, but the other one I would suggest is Okinawa in 1945, where you have an army that comes ashore and fights basically a 90 day campaign for the island. And you have an air, land and sea battle. It's the largest air, land and sea battle in history. And you have to wonder if, you know, if, if People's Republic of China were to invade Taiwan, might that be the way it goes? Because the fleet had to sit off Okinawa for a long time until the army won the battle. And of course, the air and all that. I mean, so there are some very interesting studies in there, when particularly, particularly tactically with fighter direction and all this. I mean, you could get into a whole thing with that. But those are some things that I would, you know, to augment what you're saying i mean there's there's jose said it right there's so much out there there's fertile ground for a lot of things um i think we've all kind of would agree to there's value in history because you don't learn as von bismarck said i don't learn from experience i prefer to learn from other people's experience and this is a way to do that um is there anything we've missed on this or any other thoughts that come to mind as as we've been kind of talking on this yeah, Chris, I, I, I think you, you segued it perfectly with Bismarck, talking about how we need to learn from other people's mistakes and talking about Okinawa, looking at it from the PRC perspective. Those are the guys that have to do the D-Day. They have to do the amphibious assault. And I think that the Americans and the allies in general have this this viewpoint of we are the guys that normally hit the beach. We're the guys that do the amphibious assault with massive uh, naval bombardment and air superiority. We have the forcible entry history, right? The reason I bring up Bataan and I bring up the Luzon campaign, 41, 42, and the rest of the archipelago is there, there aren't too many case studies for the Americans where we are on the receiving end of that amphibious assault and that and that initial offensive in the Pacific where we are up against the wall in a big way. You've got Wake, uh, you've got Wake Island, you've got several naval battles, uh, naval air clashes going on, but you have very little uh, counter amphibious history to really take a hold of, right? You've got other nations that you can learn from, right? You've got campaigns like Gallipoli, you've got campaigns like uh, Malaya, You've got other campaigns to look at in Europe, but really for the Americans in the Pacific, taking a look at the Luzon campaign can give you an idea of what difficulties lie ahead in planning, what kind of difficulties uh, there are for the potential adversary, right? What kind of logistical challenges are they going to have? What kind of uh, economy of force operation are they going to have to put together? Um, what's the political 
dimension of it, right? If we're the guys that aren't taking the initiative for once and we politically have to take the reactionary route to whatever their initiative is geopolitically, what, what does that look like, right? How does that change our doctrine? Because our, our doctrine is derived from the people from our society, right? We talked about how in the definition of military history, that's a study of people at war as well, right? People being drawn from their society into uniform in order to enact a certain doctrinal capability. And that's really derived from the society itself. So what does that look like on the defensive now? What is that? What kind of lessons can we learn from the Japanese at places like Okinawa where they're defending, right? What, what kind of lessons can we draw from the Germans in Europe? When they're facing Allied landings in Italy, Sicily, they're facing Allied landings in Normandy, right? Operation Dragoon in southern France. What kind of what kind of foot do we have to uh, put on now where we are the defenders? We're the guys that are defending the beach and we have to take the initiative away from ourselves and give it to the potential adversary in that case. So I, I would just throw that in uh, as, as a little bit of a sidebar there. Can I add something to that? Basically, is that um, um, given today, okay, the situation, the, the geopolitical situation right now, um, you would you would um, not see a situation where uh, the United States would be in the receiving end of an amphibious operation because of, for example, in the case of the Philippines, we got rid of the United States bases in 1991. So that leaves you several areas, um, like Japan and Okinawa and maybe Saipan. But of course, uh, looking at the Chinese uh, capabilities, would they be able to project that far without getting slaughtered in the process by the United States Navy? So so we, we what then is the situation? The situation basically is that um, the shield is the alliance system that the U.S. has. And the first ones who will feel the brunt of whatever comes out of mainland China will be the allies of the United States. Okay, So uh, we then hark back to a a situation uh, to an earlier situation wherein how do you make your allies stronger? Okay, so that's where you get uh, you get you can get lessons from, for example, what the Americans did to uh, Great Britain or the United Kingdom or the British Empire in in World War II before the United States entered the war. It was practically supplying. Um, it became as uh, it was a term arsenal of democracy coined. There was a it, it, um, 1941, I think. Just be, it was before the Pacific War, right? Right, right. Uh, yes. So, so the thing here is that the lessons to be learned here basically would be, or that that would be relevant to, for example, in the case of the Pacific, uh, would be to how do you harden your allies? Okay. In the case of the Philippines, that's why we have a heightened Balikatan right now. The in the um the Balikatan in the Philippines was the biggest. Uh, they're saying it was the biggest in history. Um. Following um, um, and um, I think around fifteen thousand uh, soldiers on both sides participated, troops on both sides participated in that exercise. Five thousand, I think, from the Philippines, ten thousand from the Americans, if I remember correctly, and that's huge uh, for Philippine standards. But again, the issue here is how how to harden allies, specifically allies like the Philippines, and to some extent, a quasi allies like Taiwan. You know, how how do you harden them? so that it gives enough time for the United States to come in, okay, as uh, to, to, because if not, then, uh, for example, in the case of the Philippines, so, um, what will happen there is it'll be, it'll be a steamroller, okay, 
Taiwan may be different, but with the Philippines, it will be a steamroller. Okay, basically, the Chinese will just uh, barrel through the Philippines. So how do you make the Philippines a tougher not to crack? And then you go back. That's why I was saying, uh, that's why I mentioned about the alliance system. That's now the difference thing. It's so so the U.S. has changed um, from being the the major force present in many areas. Now it has sort of delegated it to allies. And then it's relegated it to allies. Um, what then now can it do? And what lessons in history can it get what historical examples can get to learn how to, to deal with that uh, developing situation that we have now. That's fascinating. Well, so I wanted to kind of confirm something that Chris put out on the table is that it's uh, the U.S. and China talking about each other as their main adversaries. So it, after reading um, up on that kind of uh, diplomatic issue is the most recent national security strategy from the United States names China as the number one adversary, the, the primary adversary is China, and vice versa. The strategic documents right now from China also, and directly from Xi Jinping as well, also mention that the United States is the primary adversary for China. So that's just going into it. That's something that has been within the last year published uh, to the public, that both countries are very much concerned about each other. And then I'll throw in this other thing, because we've been talking about alliances, something that's recently come up in my research is in, in history and also currently we have NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. But uh, for, for those that don't know, there is discussion, Not I'm not exactly sure how serious, but there's something called PATO, the Pacific Alliance Treaty, uh, Treaty Organization. And so that's a conglomerate of a lot, a lot of these uh, alliance countries. So Taiwan, uh, Japan, I think Taiwan, or, uh, Thailand is in there, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the United States, South Korea. Um, a lot of these other alliances are discussing this idea. It has not come to fruition yet, which brings up the idea is in the future, that's a huge deterrent factor because in with NATO, in what I would consider the East and Europe, that's one of the biggest concerns that Russia has is if if Russia attacks a NATO country, then Article 5 comes to fruition and all the countries have to come together. That might be a big deterrence factor if PATO comes to fruition in the West, in the Pacific, because now it's all of these different countries are now under this treaty organization and potentially under an Article 5 type ideal that if one of them gets attacked, all of them come to it. Uh, come to the defense of the other as well. So that's something that's recently come with my research. But then to touch on one other thing that Chris, that you guys have all really been talking about is um, is using the basic lessons. So Grant at the very beginning was talking about how were we using these lessons from the historical examples. And Chris, you brought up Okinawa. And so to inform kind of what the U.S. military needs to uh, maintain is one just general resources having the resources to have a long drawn out war uh, multiple uh, multidisciplinary navy so not one that is just going to sit off Okinawa what else are they going to be able to bring to the table can they bring aircraft can they bring things like unmanned uh, I think they're called unmanned underwater vehicles you also have under, under surface vehicles all those different kinds of things what else is the navy going to do uh, communications is always in warfare one of the biggest issues that's immediately going to go down. Uh, so learning from kind of Okinawa, 
there is another idea uh, that is that is not quite in, and I'm going to say a couple of buzzwords. Please don't jump on them because it's a whole other conversation. But there's something called JADC2 that the United States is working on, which is the Joint All-Domain Com Command and Control, which includes artificial intelligence. There's the buzzword, moving past it. But uh, those are the different things that the United States is now taking from Okinawa. Um, and then, of course, the last thing is how do you actually mitigate casualties? Because in a long war like that, and we've also seen from Okinawa, there's going to be a significant amount of casualties, not just for the United States, but for the adversaries. And so then that's where I move on to what Jose was talking about, is that there's something that I think is overlooked a lot of the time. But the United States, in order to be able to combat in the Indo-Pacific, they need to have, well, we need to have, or they need to have, the United States has to maintain something what I would call a latent uh, strategic power and that is the indigenous production of wartime materials because like jose was talking about the philippines might not be able to maintain a long drawn out war to combat a, uh, an adversary like china so then the united states has to be able to not only supply their own forces across the largest ocean in the world but they also have to have enough latent production capability in the united states to then support all of these other countries and that might also be something that's a requirement of PATO if it comes to flourishing as well. So I think that's just my additions to, to what you guys have all been talking about, too. That's, those are very good points. Uh, uh, just as a point of interest, the North Atlantic Treaty includes Alaska as part of the defense area, but it does not include, it specifically excludes Hawaii and any other U.S. overseas territories. But if Alaska is attacked, the North Atlantic Treaty Article 5 is triggered. And that's something that that's something that bears that bears keeping in mind when we think about it from an Indo-Pacific perspective. Um, let me ask let me ask you all this because we're looking at how you can apply the lessons of history. Is it possible to look at history and either draw the wrong conclusions or misapply it? And if you know if so, what are what are there are there examples that come to mind and what might what might we need to keep in mind when we consider this? Because it's all well and good to read history, but sometimes you read it right, sometimes you may read it wrong, and I'm curious what you all might think on that. Yeah, Chris, I I, I think you brought up a very, very, very key point that I, I wanted to make earlier, but but I was kind of holding back. Uh, I, I think when you look at applying the wrong lessons, like we talked about earlier, you know, there's no checklist, there's no step-by-step, -step, right? It's always a, a, a guide. It's a guideline. But when you plug and play the wrong analogy, and you can do it in a big way, you can mess it up in a big way. If you apply, let's say, you know, occupation like post post war occupations, and try and put one on top of the other, just like it's a clean slate, you know, um, I think you could be in for a disaster there, right? We often talk about, you know, how do we take down a country? How do we execute a military operation successfully? But what do we do when it's over? Right? You break it, you buy it. Now what do you do? Uh, a prime example of that for the Americans is 2003 in Iraq, where you have the coalition uh, provisional authority, the CPA, come into Baghdad in 03 after we go through Saddam's uh, Iraqi army. And you've got an economy of force. You've got maybe 75,000 guys uh, for a country of over, what, 16 million about in Iraq. And you don't really have a plan to put it back together after you've turned off the electricity, the heat, the plumbing. Uh, and 
you put in a civilian leadership who has taken the wrong lesson from history because they've applied the occupation of Nazi Germany to the occupation of post-Bathist Iraq. That, taking that at face value might seem okay. It might be a good buzzword politically to say, oh, the the Ba'ath Party was was the same as the Nazis, so we need to treat them the same as far as an occupation goes. Well, the occupation of Nazi Germany was very different. We had a lot more troops for that, uh, a lot more international uh, assistance for that. It was divided into four different zones, including a French, British, American, and, and Soviet. Um, so that was a little bit more of a, it was, it was a different operation, a different occupation style um, when it comes to denazifying Germany. And then if you take that and try to apply the same political outcome to Iraq, and you've got, uh, for example, the, the ambassador appointed to head the coalition provisional authority uh, by the Bush administration, uh, Paul L. Bremer, when he shows up in Baghdad after the invasion's over and we've declared victory and the looting started, he gives that famous debathification order where the entire Iraqi army is disbanded. Uh, all these guys are trained. They have weapons. Uh, they still want to get paid. They still need to pay their bills. They still need to feed their family. And these guys are a defeated army. And one of the key lessons that Americans uh, kind of exhibit over and over again is, hey, you don't treat these guys like they've lost. You try to incorporate them into the rebuilding of their nation so that they're your buddy. Now you're on the side of the Americans. Now you've been liberated. You've been dis you've been discarded of this horrible government. We never wanted to wage war against the people. We wanted to wage war against the government. That's normally the line that we take. But then in the case of Iraq, when these guys had to, in order to be a teacher, in order to be a government administrator, to be some sort of manager at a plant or an oil refinery or an electrical plant, you had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party and a card-carrying member because it was Saddam Hussein's regime. So when you take a system like that that's been built over 30 years and you dismantle it, and all these guys are out of work now because you've debathified Iraq… Well, now who do you have to run the water? Who do you have to run the plumbing? Who do you have to provide basic services, education? What are the 400,000 Iraqi army veterans now going to do when you've taken away their job and their paycheck, and now they have a weapon and training, and they're they're pretty ticked? So uh, That's yeah. a great point, and I would just add the ethnic tensions. That was one of the fundamental differences was Germany – had a very different ethnic makeup than Iraq, and the the power in Saddam was centered on a certain uh, on the, on the Sunnis. So all of a sudden they lose power, you know, and basically the the lid is is ripped off. And that's that was a big mistake, and that to me points up one of the things. It's 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 not a checklist because. Yes, on the surface, there are some similarities, but Iraq, there were some very significant differences that made a huge difference when you tried to apply, take plug, to your term, plug and play the German model right into Iraq. And Chris, we talk about the Pacific, right? The perfect prime example for that uh, when it comes to understanding a society in which the military and their, their way of making war, their way of, of warfare is derived from their society. Look at Japan. Uh, the occupation of Japan under MacArthur, uh, that's a very different style of occupation than Germany. Very different application of, of force and application of power there in the post-war Japan uh, scenario versus the post-war Germany scenario. 
And it just goes back, it just, it just goes back to show you, I mean, if you have a good understanding of the history of the locations that you're going to be overseeing, and that that's at the strategic level when we're using Paul L. Bremer in Iraq and we're using MacArthur in Japan, using uh, the allies in uh, Germany, but even at the operational tactical level, if you're a junior leader, if you're a company grade officer, field grade officer, and you've got a province or you've got a section of a city that you're responsible for, if you don't take the time to understand the history behind the people that you are going to be involved with, you could have some very deadly consequences for that. Go ahead, I had Brandon. to jump on that. Um, just because what I was going to say, I think just flows so perfectly with Grant, what, with what Grant was talking about. And that is, um, so kind of that, that plug and play, I always kind of say it's going to be that knee jerk reaction of, of once you've read about one, then you think another one is going to act the same. And instead of just by a, a country or, the, or a, a theory, I'm going to go more of the, the leadership route again um, in terms of diplomacy is, you, is if you look at the history of a leader or how they've reacted. So I'll just say a communist leader, um, the ones that we could look at is Vietnam, Russia, China, North Korea not every single one is going to react the exact same. And so I think this is where you could take a lesson from history and say, okay, the leader of China during this year, I'm just not, I'm, this is just a broad example, reacted this way. Therefore, another communist leader like Russia is going to also react this way uh, to the same action because they're both communist and because we've seen that in their history. So one of my favorite examples of this is the United States loves to fly strategic nuclear bombers. So like B-2s, B-52s in the Indo-Pacific. This is a more recent example. Um, but that is the United States has flown a B-2 close to China. And generally what you would see their reaction is going to be is they're going to use the media and say, hey, look at this. The United States is, is very aggressive. They're breaking different airspace restrictions. And they're they're flying this war plane around our country. See how aggressive the, the United States is. One communist leader. The other one is North Korea, where realistically what you're going to see is if we fly a B-2, B-52, the response might be like to challenge the United States to say, if you're really going to fly a plane over there, be my guest. Like we're going to then use all of our capabilities tenfold. And so that's the the huge dichotomy between how you could put one lesson from one country into another and get two completely different reactions, two completely different actions. And so that's, I have not seen that in my experience so far, um, but that is more of just a warning of you can't take the history from one nation and plug and play it into another thinking that they're going to act the exact same. Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. That's just part of the fun of war planning. Your mileage may vary. Go ahead, Jose. Well, well, the thing is, um, um, what I've noticed is that in the application of military history, the lessons are learned, and the lessons are learned. Um, they're they're they seem they they're learned quicker in the tactical level. Okay, so for example, firefights, um, battles, um, uh, the lessons are immediately incorporated, and then you have a you have a a doctrine that's developed that can can deal with 
um, any similar occurrences or, or in similar um, situations or firefights. And uh, that explains, for example, why the United States military in its um, combat operations, the losses are always catastrophic for the other side, okay? Because it tends to learn its lessons well in the tactical level, perhaps in the operational level, perhaps also, you know, in the way that the, like for example, um, the um, desert storm and all of this, yes, they're there quick. But, um, but the problem, however, sometimes is military history's lessons learned in the strategic level, you know, um, the, the bonds on top, you know, Brendan mentioned about leadership a while ago, but this time the leadership is your own side, okay? How, how well have they inculcated it, say? How well have they learned it, you know? How well have they incorporated these lessons learned, okay? So um, that's, uh, that's something that I've um, noticed uh, um, Example in, in the Philippine case, that's what I've noticed, you know, in the, in the case that the situation that that on the top, you know, there is difficulty in crafting a working strategy, a workable strategy. And sometimes instead of looking at the military history of that issue, they would tend to pick out from other disciplines, like, for example, political science theorems and so on and so forth. And that's where the problem is, because sometimes uh, they... They tend to misread a, a a situation, and then you have, despite the fact that you've been winning all your battles down there, you stand you end up losing the war. You still end up losing the war, and and I, I can I can cite we we can all cite here several instances when that happened. Of course, the most notorious one is uh, Vietnam. Okay, uh, that's that's uh, and then I but. Further on, we can or if not lose the war, why, for example, is the the engagement of the U.S. not producing the desired results, you know, like for example, Afghanistan, and it it was almost touch and go in Iraq. So there, that, that's what. Okay. So and then when you when you when you deal with military history, um, because I've I've participated in some doctrines writing in 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 my case, you know, for 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 uh, my country's military, and usually okay, you 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 would you'd have you would need really to have an environment conducive to the a marriage of doctrine writing with military history because that's where else would you get your your data you know so so um, and then it's not a matter of of um of my opinion or somebody else's opinion but it comes out it's it's a it's like it's um it's a scholarly work you know um, the development of doctrines through military history is something that is as rigorous as a as a dissertation defense, okay. And if not more important than a dissertative dissertation's defense, why? Precisely because of the fact that lives depend on it, and not just lives, but a nation will depend on it. So, if, for example, uh, uh, what's the what's a good example here? Um, the war games, the system of war gaming, okay. Uh, because that that um, the system of war gaming it. It um, it validates it or it attempts to validate what you've been coming out as a doctrine, which then is based on military history um, or lessons learned. Uh, one of the best examples I can say of how things were screwed up was this class, this um, this this story of a war game conducted by the Japanese just before the Battle of Midway. 
Well, uh, there was this story wherein it turned out in the war game that the Japanese lost. But then here's this Japanese, I forget the name of the Japanese admiral. Um, Yamamoto. He, he, no, there was another guy. There was another guy. He just, he just, this, he dismissed everything, you know. Nagumo. Uh, get, huh? Nagumo. No, no, Nagumo. It was another, the one in charge of the war gaming. Um, he, he dismissed everything, and then you ended up with, uh, you ended up with, of course, what happened in Midway. You know, it, the warnings were ignored, and you can't have that. That's how. It's the personality of a, of, of, of a commander uh, is important here. So despite how do you make the lessons of history stick, how do you make military history viable, is it's, a, it's, a, it's, as I said, it's a very difficult, it's easier said than done. It's a difficult uh, process, despite the fact that you may have a system in place already. Like I said, in the case of the Japanese, they had a system in place already. And yet here was, an, here was a commanding officer who was so... Um, was so um, stubborn that, uh, or close-minded that he just disregarded everything, and the rest became was history. So I, I'll check it out. In, in a... That's actually brings I think this discussion to a, a good point. Military history has value, but it requires a mindful approach. Um, we're almost up to time. I'll open it if anybody has any final questions or final thoughts before we close, real quick. I was going to just end it with one more thing about uh, you talked about rolling the rolling the dice and wargaming, Jose, and it really does bring me back to the why as far as the military personnel should take military history way more seriously and really dive deep into it. Advising the elected leadership or a civilian leadership, wherever you're at, wherever you're at in your military career, when you're at that strategic level and you've built up the years of studying those different case studies, you're you're at a you're at a point in your career where you know what it is like to roll the dice, where you have done the wargaming and you've also had a little bit of operational experience maybe down the line. And you can you can have a, a more confident understanding of, hey, what are the risks that we're about to take to meet a political end that maybe the elected leadership hasn't fully thought through because that's not their job to constantly know that kind of thing. That's that's military history is not a it's not a common subject that a lot of people really study as far as the full spectrum of government leadership. So it's up to it's up to the the armed services to really take hold of that art of military history of in, in the history of war to apply the past situations to current crises to be that voice of reason to say, hey, you might not want to roll the dice in this scenario. We know how this might go, right? Like a 1914 scenario where someone can step up and say, hey, maybe you need to take a look at this case study. Maybe you need to look at this situation, uh, sir or ma'am, before you roll the dice, uh, because the political ends may not be worth the risk that you're taking. And and that's really an underlining reason at the strategic level for why, for me anyway. So I guess my final comments on this are to, to go back to the reason why we're even talking on this podcast to begin with is, is why does this even matter to the military is because in, in my personal opinion, and I would hope that my senior leadership also think this as well, is that it's even if there's a military member that is not staying in the military for a long
Brendan, you accidentally muted yourself. Oops, sorry about that. But so it's, uh, I'll, I'll say that really, uh, really quickly again, is that uh, I hope the senior leadership agree with this, but it's, it's that the, every military member's duty is to understand the reason why. Is why do they even go to the work? Why do they go to work every single day? What is the, even if they are not making a direct impact every single day, their, their, their job still supports someone that's either fighting, fighting uh, in a conflict or they are doing something that is going to be making history in that day. Um, that's for the general military in terms of now my background. For an intelligence professional, military history matters because one of the biggest things for an intelligence personnel is to understand the, is understanding the adversary. If you don't understand the history of an adversary, the history of their people, their diplomatic history, their military history, even their economic history, if you don't understand that, you don't truly know who you're dealing with. And therefore, you're missing a huge part of analysis. And once you have that, plus what's currently going on in the country and the current leadership, now you have the full picture. Because believe it or not, it's not science fiction. History happens every single day. So that's why we have to understand it from now and into the future. Yeah, so- Jose, any final well, thoughts? Well, uh, I finally found the name of the Admiral, okay? The, the name of the Japanese Admiral was, was uh, Admiral Ugaki. Okay, Admiral Mat Ugaki Matome. Okay, so, um, and um, in the um, in that aspect, okay, uh, the, we've all been saying that the importance of military history, okay, and and how, and not just its importance, but also we also talk to extend on how should we uh, use it, you know, how how should it be used? And this is it's a different matter of just knowing a, a historical detail. It's communicating it to your end user, and how are they going to um, how are they going to um, develop it further into something? Because at the end of the day, all of this turns into doctrines, okay? Um, how are we going to use that? Uh, how are you going to communicate it in a proper way? And for in that in that aspect, my last line is that just don't be a Matome Ugaki. Don't be that Japanese admiral when it comes to military uh, lessons, okay? And, there. and that's the perfect note to end on. Um, Jose Custodio, Brendan Donnelly, Grant Willis, it's been a fantastic discussion tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, I'd just like to remind our listeners that any of the opinions expressed here are our own opinions and are not to be construed as official positions or have the official endorsement of any of, of our various employers. Um, and for, for this great military history team, I'm Chris Kolakowski. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on another episode.